Good morning, everybody. Welcome into To The Point. Hope you're all doing well here on a Thursday with lots to dive into. NHL's, uh, NFL schedule release today. We've got NHL, NBA, some UFC news. So excited to talk about a number of different things with all of you today. And watching the, the games in the NHL the last couple nights, I have some overarching thoughts today. I'm watching a team that I was trying to figure out how is this team winning. I mean, I kind of I know why they're winning. They play this style, and I'll get to that team later on in the show. But I have a comparison to this team to another team that won. And I'm not certain this team will win the cup, but if they do, it's because they, they look a lot like this team to me. They look like a past champion and in the NHL. So I, I, I'm going to get into that later on in the program. We're going to talk about Keith Jones, the Flyers' new president. Keith Jones with Danny Breer. Danny Breer, very limited experience. Keith Jones has been working at Turner, working at Bally Sports Philadelphia for the last 20-plus years. Interesting decision. He knows Philly. They love him in Philly. I get that. Wouldn't have been my particular choice, but interesting nonetheless. So lots to get into today. But let's start in South Florida last night with the Toronto Maple Leafs staving off elimination, forcing Game 5 back in the 6th Friday night, defeating the Florida Panthers 2-1. A lot of different things from this game. A lot of very interesting points. But the overarching thing coming from the game for me, it's not, well, is Toronto going to come back and win this series? That That's secondary. That's not top of, top of the line stuff for me. It's just looking at the game last night and how they won. I don't believe the Toronto Maple Leafs, with this iteration of Marner, Matthews, Nylander, Riley, you throw in whoever you want. I don't think the team of the core players played a better defensive game than they did last night. They blocked a ton of shots. They blocked more than they got credit for. I agree with Kevin Bieksa. He said that during the intermission. They did not allow Florida to generate anything. Florida couldn't get two passes together in the offensive zone. The puck was bouncing. Maybe you just don't get puck luck. But there's also the Leafs worked hard. They were in lanes. They're sticks. It was a glove. It didn't matter. The whole team bought in. The whole team said, we are not losing tonight. And that's why I'm not going into, are they going to win the series? Because it's one game. But the way they played last night, it was a defensive masterpiece. They were a maestro. It was a symphony of excellence. I thought, they and they never wavered. They never gave up an odd man rush that was really all that threatening if Carter Hagee got the puck, Luke Shen would get a stick in the way, or Mark Giordano would recover after blowing a stick and then blowing a skate on the same shift. There were people in positions. This has been something I've been talking about this team forever. Their forwards gave a shit. Their forwards came back. Their forwards were engaged. They were ready to play. And it was truly a shift in how this team does business. It was a shift in seeing this team care more 
about keeping the puck out of their net than scoring on the other end. And part of the reason why this shift was necessary is Toronto isn't scoring more than two goals a, a game. They're scoring, they're averaging two goals a game in, the, in their last six games. And you score two goals a game, you're not going to win that many. The Leafs fans have blamed referees. They blame, they blame players. They blame everybody, the coaches. If you're not scoring goals, you're not going to win, period. That The game will never change in that realm. So looking at all of this, they bought in and they said, you know what? We are going to win 2-1 tonight. And they've never had that mentality. They've never said, okay, we'll win 2-1. to one. We're okay with this result. We're, we're not afraid of it. The entire team bought in, and they deserve credit for saying, we're going to win a 2-1 game. We're going to block every shot. We're going to be prepped in the key situations. And it was beautiful to watch. I mean, beautiful in the sense if you love hockey and you like seeing the uh, the game itself. The, the Last night's game was not all that entertaining. It wasn't. It wasn't a masterpiece. But it was enough to win. It was the way they felt they had to win last night. And I credit them for doing something they've never done, which is care as much about the other end as they do about scoring goals. And it's hard. It's hard to to do that. I, I understand that. When you're a goal scorer, you want to score goals. But for Austin Matthews, who's been dog shit in this series, it was necessary because I don't think he played that well offensively last. I don't think he played well again offensively last night. He was just okay. But the entire team were in shooting lanes. They were prepped, and Florida didn't have an answer. Florida's only goal was on a power play. If I really look at high-quality scoring chances, I don't know if Florida had five. I'm sure it'll say more than five on this on the analytics and, and the stat tracking and all that. But I, I don't think I don't think they did. I don't think they got many great scoring opportunities on Joseph Wall. If we're really tracking high quality scoring chances in front of that really good looks, how many did they get? Because when they did, it went in. When they got the puck to the front of that, it went in the net. But the Leafs played a style that I've never seen them play, and they won. Now, here's the rub for me. I don't think any team, any team can do that for four games in a row. That includes the Carolina Hurricanes, the New York Islanders, any team that doesn't have the skill. I don't think you can win that way they played last night for four games in a row because it's so difficult. It's not easy to be passive, to be so worried. It's like being a helicopter parent. You see your kid go over to uh, the slide, and you're oh, you got to run over to be with them. So you sometimes you have to allow the person who's supposed to be defending that player to to do that. You don't come over with the help defense. You don't go over and help your kid on the swing. You allow them to learn, and if they fall and they injure themselves, that's a learning lesson in and of itself. So I for the Leafs, play defensively. Yes, be in the shooting lanes. Absolutely. But the key thing is be defensive, but you have to open it up a bit. Because if, if the thought is we can win this way three more times, you're not going to. They're not going to, trust me. 
Trust me, they're not. And the way you came into this series, nobody thought they'd win a game like they did last night. A 2-1, block shots, defensive mentality. So what the Leafs need to do, and this gets to the bigger overarching thought, if they're going to win this series, if they're going to come back, make it interesting. Because it, it isn't interesting yet. 3-1 isn't interesting. You win one game. Way to go. You need to win four. To really make this interesting, they need to continue what they did last night, blocking shots, be defensively sound, but they need to open up their game some because it's too limited to play that way three more times. It's just, it's just not going to be the result that you want. So what my thought is, is yes, be in the shooting lanes. Yes, be present defensively. But you can do that. How about just don't jailbreak out of the zone? You notice how they didn't do that last night? You notice how they didn't throw that flip pass into the center ice where that Florida does? I hate the teams that do this, where they have a winger up there, and nine times out of the ten, the team that's just trying for that flip pass, the stretch pass, it doesn't work. The Leafs did that zero times last night. Have your, have your offensive players in your own zone. Be ready for exit zone passes, but break out in stride. Three guys, have your defensemen aggressive, jump into the rush, and create scoring opportunities. Don't play so passive. Use your speed. Because again, Florida is never is not going to be faster than you on Friday. They're never going to be faster than you. They could do cardio for fucking another 10 hours. They're not going to match it. So use your advantages. Look at Mark Stahl. They still haven't done this in this series. Look at Mark Stahl and burn him. He is slow as molasses. He's... The fact that he hasn't been exposed yet in this series is mind-boggling to me. He is hes still in the league somehow. I don't get it. He's no good. He doesn't bring anything to the table. He's got a long stick. It's always got giraffe arms, and he's got a long stick. Other than that, he brings nothing of value or substance to this series. Attack him. Attack him, attack him, attack him. Ratko Gudis, not exactly fast. I don't think the Leafs really want to deal with him, probably for good reason. But again, you see him. He's not the fastest guy in the ice. He's, you can get by him easily. Attack, attack, attack. So for the Maple Leafs to truly win, to come back in this series, it's not play that style that they did last night three more times. And if somebody tells you that, you listen to another podcast today, you listen to over whatever you like to listen to, they're wrong. They're wrong because it can't be done. The Kings didn't do that in 2014. The Flyers didn't do that in 2010. Every game is different. Every, every time you do something, it's right? If you have the same, if it's Groundhog Day, you have the same day over and over again. Why would you live life? That is boring. It, it, you don't, it, it's, it's just, it's... It's like eating the same meal over and over again. I used to do that. Believe me, sucked. And you just you get sick of it. You, you got to make some changes. Not every painting, not every drawing, everything is you look at it differently. And truly, for the Leafs to win, they need to open it up. They need their best players to be their best players. I said this off the top. I don't think Austin Matthews was good last night. 
And two things can be true. The least one in the game, Matthews cannot play well. That's that's another thing that needs to be talked about more as, as, as a whole. When you're talking about players, your team can still win and your best players suck. I think three of these four games, Austin Matthews has been average to below average. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I'm wrong about a lot. Sports rarely. But I think he's been... He's your best player, which some people think he's the best player in the world. You got to present that. You got to be scary. You got to scare the hell out of the opposition. I never should. He's not doing that. He's not doing that. And he should create more opportunities. And guess what? Getting to the net, hitting Bobrovsky's stick, riding up, not going in the net. You got to score. Okay? You're a fucking goal scorer. That's what you're known for. Put one in the back of the net. Now, looking at the Toronto side of things for the other best players. Bill Nylander, like him or hate him, which I get either way because there's nights you want to strangle him and there's nights he's your best player. Out of Marner, Tavares, Matthews, O'Reilly, what just the best offensive players. William Nylander is the most consistent playoff performer on the Toronto Maple Leafs. Up front. It's not close. He's been pretty damn good in most postseasons. Is he going to care going into the corner every time? No. Is he going to back check consistently every time? No. Made some good defensive plays last night. Or but he is always around the puck. He is always creating something. And he gets a lucky bounce and he scores a goal on the power play. But guess what? He scored the goal. Matthews did He he consistently brings it. He consistently has jump, has compete, and I don't think you have to bring that out of him in the postseason. Maybe in the regular season when he doesn't care in game 64. Who cares? Who gives a shit? People complain about hasn't scored a goal in five games. Whatever. Okay. Worry about his next contract. Or he'll be somebody else. Oh, I just say that. He always is around the puck. He's always doing something consistent. He's more, nine times out of 10, it's a positive thing when he has the puck. And I truly believe that. So I think for, he needs to continue, don't change. Continue to do what you're doing. There'll be people, Leafs fans that say they love the Leafs, but hate William Nylander. Who cares about them? They're not, they're, they're losers anyway. Forget about them. Continue to play your game. The other guy last night for me who had a good game, I thought he had a horrible, horrible first 40 minutes like he has for 90% of this postseason. I thought through 40 minutes, Mitch Marner was game three. That was brutal. He had a great last 20, not because he scored a goal. Because, again, that's another pet peeve of mine. He scored a goal, he had a good game. Wrong. Wrong. I learned that from my parents early on in life just in playing playing hockey just because you scored a goal doesn't mean you played well how'd you play the rest of the game do you have any jump to do any of this through 40 he had an assist on the Nylander goal so by the metrics he was having a great game wasn't the last 20 minutes he was all over the puck he created he created space for himself and he was smart and he had a little more dog in him last night he had a little more bite. He'll never be the, the big dog. <clears throat> He'll never be a scary figure on the ice because he's Mitch Marner and he's 
160 pounds. But what he can bring to the table, what he can do, he did last night. That is the game changer in this series for me. It's him playing well consistently because throughout the regular season, he was their best player. Not Austin Matthews, not Bill Nylander. Mitch Marner was the straw that stirs the drink. And he can continue to do that. It's tougher in the postseason because there's tight checking. There's not a whole lot of space. But what he did in the third period, you see on his goal, he gets to the top, uh, top of the ice, gets to the blue line, he shoots a puck, traffic in front. How about cycle the puck around and get the defense, which isn't that good on Florida, as we documented, open up. Get them to open up, and then you find a guy cross ice for a tap-in. Just be creative. Be the guy that you were in the regular season, just a little more agitated, like he was last night. And here's another thing. Just because you win the game doesn't mean you can't make adjustments. Because if something's not working and you won, doesn't mean you just bail. Oh, we'll stick with it. No. No, you gotta you gotta look at what you're doing and is this positive, is this negative, and go through that process. Two things. On the power play, it is inexcusable to me that William Nylander is not on the top unit. I do not care if Sheldon Keefe has to take off Ryan O'Reilly. I don't care if he has to take off John Tavares. I believe he won't take off John Tavares because John Tavares is pajama boy. John Tavares is the captain. And for whatever reason, in pro sports, you have to care about feelings. I don't get it. I never will get it. The sentimental crap. There's different stuff in life. There's different businesses. I think if you're working in different different places, you got to care about feelings more. In pro sports, no. It's not like you're scratching him. He's on the second power play unit. John Tavares or Ryan O'Reilly? Pick, pick one. I don't care. They do the same thing. They should both. They, one of them should be on the second unit. Nylander is the most dangerous person on the least power play. Yes, more than Marner, more than 34 with his C cuts out there. It's William Nylander. Have him on the top power play unit. It wasn't working in the regular season, so you changed it. Fuck the regular season. That was a month ago. Things change. Sheldon Keith, you love to put things into a blender. You like to change things up. Oh, we got to do this. We got to do this. Make this change. This change. Well, use it now. Guess what? You scored a power play goal last night that was your saving grace in the game. Guess who was on the ice? And it wasn't because he started on the power play because there was a fucking line change. William Nylander. Not Matthews, not Marner, not O'Reilly, not Tavares, not Riley. It was William Nylander. Easy, simple change. Get him on the power play. There's number one. Number two. Matthews and Marner should not be playing together. William Nylander should be playing with Austin Matthews, and here's why. Matthews is skating like he has cement in his skates. <coughs> Excuse me. He is playing timid. He doesn't like to get in scrums. He clearly doesn't like physical confrontation. I don't think he likes to get hit. 
That's not what I'm asking him to do. William Nylander creates opportunities because he puts the burners on and because he's skating well. Maybe that can be infectious on the team's best player. Have some jump. Put him with somebody that starts every game ready to go, in my opinion. Marner doesn't. Again, first 40, first 40 minutes last night, snore. Garbage. Have him with Nylander, please. Marner, I play Marner with O'Reilly. Myself, I don't think, again, I don't think they're going to do that for whatever reason, but I don't think they're going to do it. It's perplexing. doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I'm not a coach. Maybe I should just shut up, but that's just, I see some of this around hockey and it's just, anyway, I'll get off that tangent, but I, that's what I would do personally. That's what I would do. And because it, it just, it makes too much. It, I just, you watch the game. They win two to one because they had the best defensive game ever. My point earlier, they're not going to win four more times like that. Three now. They're not going to win three more times like that. And if you're scoring two goals per game, which they have the last six, you know what? You're not going to win the series. You're not going to win three in a row. If your best players aren't scoring goals. And if you average two goals a game, the next three, I'll bet I'll go to Vegas on you not winning that series. Five on five, you're not creating enough. And that needs to change. For Florida. Florida couldn't break through the brick wall last night. I thought the Duclair, Barkoff, Verhege line had their worst game of the series because I think they've been great. I look at game five as a massive opportunity for Matthew Kachuk. He has zero goals in the series. He's got four assists in four games, which is solid, not great. Kachuk, Bennett, Cousins. I think Kachuk needs to have a game where he's the best player. If they're going to win it for game five for him, you're on the road. I think he loves playing on the road. Because the fans in Toronto hate him now. He was beating up Mitch Marner at the end of the game last night, which I had no problem with. I'll get to that in a minute. But he needs to have a game where he's all over the puck. He's attacking the defense, creating opportunities, getting pucks to the middle of the ice. And he's absolutely capable of doing it because he's one of the best players in the world. But finding that space, finding that opportunity, that's what I think Matthew Kachuk needs to do. Get to the dirty areas. Find a way to score some goals. And if I'm Florida, I'm not panicking yet. I'm not changing my lines. I'm not doing anything like that because I think they it's been working for them. They know who they are as a team. And we'll see what Paul Maurice decides to do, but I don't think he's going to panic. It's one game, and I think he has confidence in his team. The Lundell-Reinhardt uh, line, they were their best line again last night, but it's their third line. That can't be the case. They were five on five. They're the most dynamic and they're the most, they're the line that was around the puck the most. Kachuk, Bennett, if you're going to, you want to close it out in game five, I think they need to be great. They've been okay. 
since game two. This game also had some rough stuff, and there was a lot of debate on Twitter, and I, I, I poked a bear with just people from Rexton that I know that I, uh, and I, I can just, what, something I love to do, and this is not a good trait, but I like to just like throw some chum in the water, just, just a take that's like a half take that I know people will just completely hate and then leave the conversation. It's something I really enjoy doing. And again, it's a negative thing that I do, but again, you have enough people that are passionate about it. Normally, normally Leafs fans are people that hate the Leafs. So that's, it's easy to, to get that conversation uh, moving in the direction that I wanted to. But in the middle of the second period last night, there's a delayed penalty on TJ Brody for holding the stick. And David Camp, who might have been through six again through 60 minutes, the least best forward last night, credit to him. He's got the puck. They blow the whistle. But as he's touching the puck, Radko Gudis, the woodsman, is coming at him and completely buries him. All I heard was that was dirty, that was charging, that shouldn't have happened. Okay. I disagree. Here's why I disagree. It's a bang bang play. TJ Brody's going to, uh, David Camp's going to touch the puck. Radko Gudis is skating towards a man looking to finish a hit. What's he supposed to do on that play? He's moving fast. He's supposed to hold up. He's supposed to not throw the hit. Again, you can hit a guy as, when he has the puck. They blow the whistle. It's right, it's right alongside each other. So that's not a dirty play. It was not after the whistle. It was right at the whistle. That's not a penalty. It wasn't charging. It wasn't roughing. It was a check. David Camp wasn't ready for it. True. That's not Racco Gudis' fault. That's not, that's not the fault of Racco Gudis for being prepared to hit somebody. And to me, oh, Radko, typical Radko Gudis, dirty player. Enough, enough, enough of that. And then at the end of the game, there's the skirmish, and the Leafs started it by, by being pissed off that, that Sam Bennett threw a hit with four seconds left. There's four seconds left in the game. The game's not over until the whistle blows at 0.00. And what happened there? You play till the end of the game. Maybe Morgan Riley didn't think that was happening, and then he get, gets hit, and they didn't like it. Matthew Kachuk ragdolls Mitch Marner, and Sam Bennett gets a few shots in on, I forget who now, while he was on the ice. Toronto doesn't like it. Do something about it in game five. You got Luke Shen on the ice. Have him out there. Go after Sam Bennett. Send him a message. Other than that, shut up. Shut up. Florida's the more physical team. They're the more physically imposing. They have more players that can hurt you. Sure. Use what you can to your advantage. I just didn't. Oh, dirty this, dirty that last night. It's a lazy argument, in my opinion. It's not one that makes a whole lot of sense to me, but 
But hey, I'm no Leaf fan, but I'm no Panther fan. I'm just watching the games. Credit to both goaltenders last night. I don't think either goaltender had a tough night. But Joseph Wall did what he had to do. He was solid in between the pipes. And for a rookie goaltender, he looked incredibly poised. So he deserves credit for, for stepping up in that in that situation and, and playing well. So so good for him. So good for him being for being in that situation and and, to, and taking it on. Because we've seen goalies wilt. We've seen guys just not have it. To me, there's only one decision. You start him, not Matt Murray. Matt Murray didn't deserve to be in the net. But the Leafs win. That, that's the news of the day. What happened after, the physical stuff. You win one game. It's not going to – you can't play that way another three times. And think you're going to win the series. I just don't think it's going to happen. No team has played that style three games in a row and won them. Carolina doesn't do it. And Carolina is the best defensive team in the NHL. The Kings didn't do it when they were down 3-0. The Flyers didn't do it when they were down 3-0. So I think the game has to open up a little bit for the Maple Leafs to win the series. I'm not saying you're going to win the game 7-6. But to expect to win 2-1 and have less than 25 shots, not happening. Not happening. But they win in Sunrise. The series splits back to Toronto Friday night. So we'll see what happens then. Let's head to Edmonton, Alberta, where this has been a, a weird series. It's... Odd games, Vegas Golden Knights crush the Oilers. Even games, the Edmonton Oilers crush the Vegas Golden Knights. And you watch Edmonton last night, and the way they started the game, and the way they start most games, it's impressive. They come out like a bat out of hell, hitting you, getting in the in the key areas, and scoring goals. I mean, last night, Nick Bukestad, a deadline acquisition, strips Shea Theodore of the puck, Puck gets to Clem Costin, he shoots it, misses the net. Bukestad wrap around, buries the goal, makes it one nothing. Then on Theodore's next shift, he takes a stupid spearing penalty on Costin. Bouchard scores on the power play. It's two nothing before you know it. Edmonton loves starting games fast, and what I think really makes them different and what separates them from a lot of teams is the way they physically play. They hit you hard. They don't make it easy on you. And it, a lot of it is not just hitting after the after the play. It's hitting somebody to separate from the puck. It's doing whatever you have to do to create scoring opportunities. It's just it's a tough go for the Vegas Golden Knights defense defense because Edmonton's so much bigger, so much heavier than they used to be. Evander Kane is going to come at you, and he's not easy to deal with. He's a guy that can score goals, but he's also a guy that's going to wear you down. And you have to be prepared for that, and you have to be ready for that war. But to me, last night, Edmonton just came out with a purpose. They came out with meaning, and they weren't going to lose that game. You knew it from the beginning. It was 3-0 after the first period. 
and they outshot them by nearly 10 shots. Aiden Hill wasn't ready for the for the war that was coming at him. But it was a pretty simplistic game because look, Drysaddle played 19 minutes last night. Bouchard only played 20. Ekholm played 18. <laughs> McDavid played 21. Still not a whole lot for him. Darnell Nurse played 23. 23 good minutes. So it was it was an easy game for the Oilers. And to me, what what they did, what was so great, is that if they're going to win this series, is 2-2, and I've said every other game, the other team has blown the other out. Counterpunch with their speed. You fly down the wing, you get a good scoring opportunity, then the Oilers come back with numbers, and they're more likely to score on an odd-man rush than you are. And I think they're more willing to play that freewheeling, high-risk game. They will play that with you every time. Vegas is structured. They're, we're going to take away the neutral zone like they did in Game four, uh, game 3. We're going to take away the neutral zone. We're going to have guys back. We're, no easy entries into our zone. But the game started last night at a frantic, frantic pace, and Vegas couldn't keep up. And before you know it, they're lost, and Edmonton's just doing circles around them. They're in the sand, and you're just in the ATV, and you're doing circles, 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 and you can't see a foot in front of you. That was Edmonton. They just came out and said, enough of this style of game that we're playing. It's not working. We're not going to let you impose your will on us. We are going to play our style whether you want us to or not because that is the way we're approaching this game. So for the Oilers, they need to be able to counterpunch. They need to play free-willing hockey, but with also having some structure, the Matias Ekholms of the world, and the biggest thing for the Oilers, Ekholm scores last night. Bouchard scores. Bukestad. McDavid had two assists. McDavid's been okay in these playoffs. Not great. He's been just okay. Drysdale hasn't scored in two games. They're still winning. Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who I mentioned uh, the other day. He needed to, to find himself on the score sheet. He had two points. That's a positive. I think both these teams are really good, personally. I think both these teams are fantastic. They play vastly different styles. They both have goaltenders that you look at and you go, how is one of these teams going to be in the conference final with this guy in net? We could say that for the whole entire NHL. But game five should be fine because it's back in Vegas. And how do they change it up? How do they approach, you know, getting line matching and having defensive responsibilities with, with, the, with the right guys? Now, another thing for Vegas, and this for me is a big one. There are a physical bunch, and yet I don't see it enough. They need to go into corners and separate guys from pucks. They need to make the Oilers' defense feel it more. Barbashev, Amadio, Will Carrier, Mark Stone. Make the Oilers' defense know you're there. Because I believe right now, as the Golden Knights wake up this morning, whether they stayed in Edmonton or they flew back to Vegas after the game last night, they are more hurt. They have more bruises than the Edmonton defense. 
and it shouldn't be a wide margin because they played see, almost the same number of games, I think Vegas is hurting more. Because Evander Kane goes in there and he's got the intent to injure. He's got the intent to hurt you. Same with Bukestad. Clem Costin is a mammoth of a man. Dreisaitl is a power forward that will knock you the fuck over. For Vegas, establish that more. Make Edmonton's defense make decisions. Make them a little worried. Make them not want to take that hit. That's half the battle. D'Arnais is going to make stupid decisions with the puck because that's Vinny D'Arnais and that's his M.O. But make Kulak, who isn't exactly a huge man. Make CeCe. Make some of these defensemen that are that like to make errors on a good day. Make them make that error even easier because they're afraid of taking the hit or their body's wounded. They don't want to take anymore, and it's a battle of wills. These two teams can both play that way. I see one team doing it. The other is not. It's easier to win when you're feeling better than when you're hurt. It's one thing in the UFC when you take a shot and the guy goes down is on the ground. You, you can go down and pounce on him. Yes, you could recover, turn it into a submission, and ultimately win the fight. But you'd rather be the one in top position looking to throw a couple more strikes and finish it there. You don't have to scramble. You don't have to figure it out. It's an easier way to finish things. Now, this game also had some nefarious activity at the end of the game. So, in the third period, Drysaddle's flying down the wing. Alex Petrangelo, who's been fantastic in this series for Vegas, with one hand, a massive slash over the wrist of Leon Drysaddle. Petrangelo gets five in a game. He's ejected. It was, it was dirty. And it very well could be suspension worthy because it just, it wasn't a good look. It was dirty, it was deliberate. And that would be crippling for Vegas because he is he's, he's a great player. There's three games left potentially in this series. Five, six, seven. I think he's going to be suspended. I do. They may suspend they may suspend him for the rest of the series. I think he's gonna get I think he'll get two games for that. He's two playoff games. That's like four regular season, four or five regular season games. He may be suspended for the rest of the series, but I certainly don't think he's playing game five. And the reason you say it's a slash, if you haven't seen the video, go watch it. It's deliberate attempt to injure. It's right over the wrist. It's a huge, huge swing. Baseball swing at him, and it just can't happen. The league can't allow that to happen. It's dirty, plus it's on one of the league's best players. That's another thing that goes into this. So there was that. Then later in the third period, Darnell Nurse gets a five in a game. He fights Nick Hag. Great tilt. Darnell Nurse is a tough lad. He gives Nick Hag some big punches. Now, if you're given a five in a game at the end of the third period, at less than five minutes to go in the third period, and you're give, given a match penalty, you are suspended. For the next game. So as of right now. He will be. 
he will be suspended for game five. Now, the league can overturn this, which they should. And I'm just trying to find the wording for you all here because I, here it is here. Edmonton defenseman Darren Nurse is facing a potential one-game suspension after receiving an instigator penalty in the final five minutes of game four. Nurse received the additional penalty after dropping the gloves of Nicholas Hag in the game's final minute. The automatic suspension could be overturned upon review, and Woodcroft argued after Wednesday's game that it should be. And I agree with him. It was no, it was dirty at the end of the game. There's a lot going on, and I think myself, this is just the way I grew up watching hockey. Your teammate, your best player, just nearly had his arm chopped off, and. You're not going to have a response. You're not going to do anything to acknowledge it. That's not the way you approach it. Yes, the league doesn't want fighting, and that's why you don't want an instigated penalty in the, in the last minute because you don't want any of that shit to go on. But it's the playoffs. Something happened. My thought here is I think it's going to be overturned. Darnell Nurse will be playing in game five. He had a rough series in, in round one. He's playing a lot better. But you don't hear about when he's playing well. Nobody likes Darnell Nurse for some reason. Anyway, to me, Alex Petrangelo, dirty play. Dirty play, a, a play that was not needed, and quite frankly, a stupid one from him. I look at Alex Petrangelo with a guy with a really high hockey IQ. A former champion who was brought into Vegas to kind of get to be the player to get them over the top. Him and Mark Stone in lockstep. And you're in a 2-2 series, and the series is as close as you want it to be, and he might be gone now. He might not be available. It's it's a huge shift. Because as I mentioned, Shea Theodore is their other key defenseman. He didn't play well last night. So if Petrangelo being out, it adds more stress to Hag. It adds more stress to White Cloud, to Alec Martinez. It just makes everybody's life a little bit harder because Petrangelo – is their horse. He is their he's their best defenseman. You could argue he's still their best player. I thought in game three he was the best player on the ice. Either team. Just looking at things, he played 23 minutes last night in a 4-1 loss, and he missed time because he took a match penalty. He's playing a ton. So this series is interesting because it's it's getting – you could argue maybe uh, Petrangelo took that penalty because of the hits he's taking and the way Edmonton's approaching the game. And that's definitely – you know, emotions boil over and some of that can happen. Vegas needs to clog up the neutral zone. They need to continue to play McDavid the way he's been playing because he hasn't been playing that well, quite frankly. But credit to Ken Holland. He's put a way better supporting cast around the Edmonton Oilers, even than from last year, a team that made the conference final. A team that made the conference final, they did get swept in the conference finals. They weren't that close to winning. But you get there, that's a step. And Stuart Skinner responded. Played well last night. Didn't have to be great, but he was, he was good when he had to be. For Vegas, Laurent Brassois hurt. They've, been, they've already said Logan Thompson's not going to be available. I don't think it's Hail Mary time for Vegas, but if you don't have Petrangelo, you're without, you're on goaltender number four. I would go with Jonathan Quick. 
in game five if I'm Vegas. Because what's Aiden Hill, that's your big saving grace, or if La Roba is back, neither of these guys is scary. Jonathan Quick's an old older man. He's not what he used to. He's not 2012 Jonathan Quick. He's, he'll never be that guy again. But he played Edmonton last year. He's played Edmonton a ton over his career. They played in the same division since he entered the league. He played well last year in the first round. They lost in seven games. I would go with Jonathan Quick because I believe he still has something left. Maybe he isn't your starting goaltender the rest of the playoffs. You go back to Lauren Brassois when he's healthy or whatever happens there. But Aiden Hill looked a little shook last night. The Ekholm goal was weak. The, the Bouchard shot was good, but I just I didn't see a guy that was all that sharp last night. I don't think he played fantastic. No Logan Thompson, no Robin Leonard, no Laurent Brassois. Now it's Aiden Hill or Jonathan Quick. I'm going with Jonathan Quick. Yeah, he's 38 years old, and he's not going to be 2012, 2014 Jonathan Quick. What's Aiden Hill? What's Aiden Hill ever done in this league? What's he doing at this point of his career? He was added as a third goaltender before the season, hoping for insurance. And now he's starting playoff games. It's crazy. You look around. Last night, Aiden Hill, Stuart Skinner, first year in the league, Joseph Wall, rookie, Goalie Bob, outlier, Jay Gottinger, second year in the league, already a stud, but again, young, Seattle Kraken, Philip Grubauer, who saw that coming, and then you got Carolina with Freddie Anderson slash Antiranta slash Korchkoff. Who knows who's starting for Carolina on a given day? And then you have Vitek, Vanacek, and Akira Schmid for New Jersey. It's just, it's a, it's a crazy, the goaltenders that are starting games has to be in important spots. That's why to me, having a, a number one defenseman will always be more important than having a, a top goaltender. Even as much as I love uh, Vasilevsky. And he's the best goaltender in the world. You could argue he's the best defenseman in the world because he eliminates problems. But for, for Toronto, I don't think they have a number one defenseman. And I think that's why it makes it tough for them to win a Stanley Cup. Is Brandon Montour a number one defenseman? I think he's playing his ass off. I thought he was Florida's most creative player last night. And he's had a, a great season. And he's kind of putting himself into that conversation of being a number one defenseman, certainly. So there, there's a there's a debate that can be had there with him. I want to save the Carolina and, and those teams until I get to them, but uh, last night's game, Edmonton. I like Darnell Nurse. I think Ed, Darnell Nurse is a number one defenseman. Ekholm helps because he adds insurance, but I, I think Edmonton would have one. Vegas does with Petrangelo. So those teams, I think, could win, could win a cup. It, I think it's very tough to win without a number one defenseman because they play a ton of minutes, and they play a ton of minutes, and you don't even realize it till you look at the box score at the end of the game because they're quiet, they do it efficiently, and they keep the puck out of your net. And that that's the that's what makes them great. Not the points, not, not the counting numbers. It's just how they approach the game and how they make – Everybody's life a little easier. So that, that's why I look at different teams. I'm like, eh, 
I don't know if they can do this because I don't know if they have the the the, the horse that can play these kind of minutes every game. But we'll see. Carolina, New Jersey. Game five tonight in Raleigh. I think this series is over tonight. New Jersey's won 6-1, 6-1, then lost 8-4, and then won 6-1. Or maybe 7-1. Every game they've won has been a complete mauling. Jordan Martinook, who's basically a fourth liner, has 10 points in four games in this series. Leads the entire second round in scoring. I had a game. I was watching this game Tuesday night. And I said, "Well, that's a game changer because it was one nothing New Jersey, and it was kind of a weak goal on Freddie." And I said, "I love that the Canes D gap up in the neutral zone. They stop the rush. They turn, and it leads to opportunities the other way. And that's a, a thing that I think can allow them to go farther and potentially go deep into the playoffs." But I'm watching Carolina, and I'm thinking, this is so weird. It's so perverse. This team did nothing at the trade deadline other than Pugliarvi, who was a healthy scratch the other night. They don't have a superstar. They're nondescript. They have a great coach. But why are they winning? And how where, How can I put what, – what box do I put this team in? They're boring. They're physical. They're tough. All of these things. But they're also fast. They're faster than you give them credit for. Who who are the Carolina Hurricanes? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and this is in the middle of the second period because I damn sure didn't watch the third. I was watching the Celtics blow a game to the 76ers. The Carolina Hurricanes are the 2012 Los Angeles Kings. That is my comparison to this team. L.A., had a little more skill, yes. But I think the Los Angeles Kings and these Carolina Hurricanes have a lot in common. I'm going to go through it here. Jordan Stahl is the eliminator. That's what I call him. You put him against the opposing team's top center, and he will eliminate them or do his damn sure best to do it. Jack Hughes, every time he's had a point in this series, Jordan Stahl has not been on the ice. Jordan... uh, Jack Hughes has zero points in the two games in Carolina. Why? Because Jordan Stahl is on the ice every time he hits the ice. Jordan Stahl currently is the best of the Stahls. They're all still playing. Jordan could play for a while yet because he he doesn't try to score goals. He tries to stop you from scoring goals, and he's fine with that role. That's invaluable. It's hard to teach people to do that because eventually your selfish nature – overcomes you, he does not. To me, the comparison for Jordan Stahl and the 2012 Los Angeles Kings is Mike Richards. Mike Richards was a superstar in Philly. He was the captain. He was their best player for for a period of time, and he gets traded to Los Angeles. And you remember... You remember Mike Richards more for being arrested and ha- having some problems at the end of his career, not about how good a player he was or how he played in Los Angeles. He was the checking line. He was a guy that would go against the opposing team's best players and eliminate them. He stopped the cycle. He would forecheck you. He would be on your ass all the time. 
Mike Richards is Jordan Stahl. Jordan Stahl was drafted second overall. Jordan Stahl was looked at as a prospect that can't miss. He's he's a future he's a future player. He's going to be a number one, number two center. He's going to put up a lot of points. He wasn't looked at as this defensive shutdown guy that he's basically morphed into. Mike Richards again, top draft pick, good player, really good in the uh, in the OHL. It was these guys have similar pass. Because Jordan Stahl early in Pittsburgh was looked at to be a scorer, and it morphed into the role he has now that he so elegantly plays. That's my comparison. Jordan Martinuk. Who is Jordan Martinuk? Well, you haven't heard of, haven't probably heard of him. Assistant captain for the Hurricanes. He's bounced around the league. He's played in Arizona. He's played for Philly. And now he's in Carolina. A leader of this team quietly and 10 points in four games. Now, he's not a huge scorer. He's not going to be a huge scorer in the regular season. But he's a hardworking guy. He knows where to get the puck, and he's a smart hockey player. My comparison for Jordan Martinuk at this point is Dustin Brown. Jordan Martinuk is tenacious on the forecheck. He will block shots. He will engage with you physically. He will drop the gloves if he has to, but he also will contribute. He will never score a pretty goal. He doesn't have great hands, but somehow yet he is ultra-effective and you'd want him on your team. Dustin Brown was never going to score a nice goal. He was always just going to be in that area, get some loose change, find a goal, and you live with it. For Checky, you love him. He's a team leader. But Brown was the captain of the Kings. Martin Eric is assistant captain here. They have similarities. They have similarities. Dustin Brown's a better player. I will add that. Maybe you'd say it's Dwight King from the 2012 Los Angeles Kings. I don't see it that way. I see Martinuk at this point, the way he's playing currently, he is Dustin Brown. He's having that level of impact. He's always around the puck. And again, he's a line that when they're on the ice, he's owning the opposing team's best players. Yes, for Brat, and he sure come over the ice. Martinuk says, please, please send them on. I'm going to go eat their lunch. And nine times out of ten, he does. Love Jordan Martinuk. Smart, smart player, playing like Dustin Brown throughout these playoffs. Yasperi Kokaniemi. Kokaniemi, the guy that was overpaid by the Hurricanes, true. The guy that was drafted too high by the Montreal Canadiens, true. The guy that was played too early by the Montreal Canadiens, true. And now he's in Carolina. And again, you think about the negatives with Kokaniemi. He can't do this. He's never going to be this. But you got to look at his overall game. Is he still overpaid? Yes. But throughout these playoffs, as a centerman, the way he approaches it, defensively, having a stick in the right situation, he has been great. He has been great. And he's a menace when he's on the ice because he's so big, because he has those long arms. He can do whatever the hell he wants. And the only thing that comes to mind easily is just Perry Kokaniemi is Anche Kopitar. 2012 Anche Kopitar. Kokaniemi can play an offensive role or he scored some goals in these playoffs. He turns defense into offense. 
They're both huge men. They both have long sticks. They both uh, love playing both ends of the ice. They backcheck as hard as they try to score a goal. Kokaniemi was drafted third overall. But like Jordan Stahl, he, was, he didn't turn out to be a, a high draft pick potential. But yet they're on this team together, and they're having success. Kopitar might not have as much hype as, say, as say uh, Kokaniemi did. But at the same time, you have to be willing to accept what's coming to you. You have to be willing to accept a role that's going to be launched onto your lap. And I look at Kokaniemi. He's done that in spades. Kopitar did that. You think back to the 2012 Kings. Jeff Carter was scoring goals. Tyler Toffoli. Tanner Pearson. Kopitar was shutting down the team's best players. He was playing against the Sedins. He, he, at times, he was on the ice with Dwight King with fourth liners because they liked that situation better. Kokaniemi, to me, is... For the Hurricanes, what Kopitar was to the 2012 Los Angeles Kings. If you're just joining me, I think, to me, the comparison, the Carolina Hurricanes are the 2012 Los Angeles Kings, and there's a number of different players that I look at. Jacob Slavin, the best player on the Carolina Hurricanes, one of the best defensemen in the league. And if that's a debate you want to have, Let's not, because it's just it's just a fact. Jacob Slavin rarely makes a mistake on the ice. He rarely makes a misstep. He is so good. And this is a tough one. Because I couldn't say Drew Doughty, because Drew Doughty's such a different player than Jacob Slavin. But Jacob Slavin can stop you from creating opportunities. He got an assist the other night because he broke up a play in the middle of the ice. You went, you went down the other way, and they scored a goal on it. Jacob Slavin is a Swiss, Swiss Army knife, not the Alex Kerfoot Swiss Army knife. This is actually a good knife. Let's say, what country is doing things right right now? Not many, so that's kind of tough. Let's just say he's a jack of all trades, Jacob Slavin. That's what he does well is he doesn't do much wrong. He's, just, he's always around. He's always in the right situation. And you like him. You like having him on the ice whenever you can. To me, Jacob Slavin is Jake Muzzin. On those Kings teams, Jake Muzzin was playing with Drew Doughty. He eliminated scoring opportunities, and he covered up for guys that would take chances. Drew Doughty loved to take chances. He loved to jump into the rush. He loved to, to contribute offensively for a good reason. He was the best defenseman in the world at the time. But Jake Muzzin, hang back. He would get the occasional point. But more often than not, he would cover for his defense partner, play extremely well, be physical, whatever he had to do. Jacob Slavin, Jake Muzzin. Jacob Slavin plays with Brent Burns. Brent Burns can be a riverboat gambler. Brent Burns can be a guy that takes too many chances. But it's okay because you have Jacob Slavin with him. I think Slavin and Pesci, if you get into a series and you need a shutdown pair, you have that potential. Clearly, Rob Brennamore doesn't see that as a need in this series, which, to be fair, he doesn't really need. But Slavin and Jake Muzzin is my comparison there. I just see this team so similar. And my final one, and I could have found more, 
Marty Netcash. Marty Netcash, the big winger who's got a big shot and can can score goals when you need him to. He gets assists. I just I love him because he's always around the puck. He's always doing something productive for the team. My comparison here, Marty Netcash is Jeff Carter. 2012, Jeff Carter was lethal. He was playing on one of the best lines in hockey in that 70s line with Tanner Pearson and with Tyler Foley, as I referenced earlier. He scored goals. He got to the net. He engaged physically. Marty Nekash can play dirty if you want him to. He can score a hat trick if you want him. He got two goals the other night. He distributes. To me, he's an invaluable member of the Carolina Hurricanes. He'd be scooped up by a number of teams elsewhere. He scored 25 goals this season. I'm not saying he's good as he's not as good as Jeff Carter was in his prime, but the way they both are asked to play, the way Jeff Carter played for Daryl Sutter, I think Rob Brendamore is a similar coach. Daryl presents the message, I think, more negative than Rob Brendamore would, but it's difficult to play for those two coaches. Carolina's had to play this style for a long time under Rob Brennamore. And they've got deep, they've gotten close, but they've never felt like they were going to win the Stanley Cup. I didn't think they had a chance in hell of winning at the start of the playoffs. I really do now. Because this series is over tonight. Over. The Devils are, they've booked trips to Cancun. They've got to rebuild. Do they, they got to retool, sorry, not rebuild. Do they need, are they going to bring Lindy Ruff back? I think they need to add more girth to the scene. They need to supplement their their talent with some physical players, with some more guys that are willing to go into the corners, create opportunities to get the puck for for their for their skill guys. They have too many skill guys on this team. Like it was set in stone before the year you re-signed Jesper Bratt. I'm not convinced of that anymore because he's not a playoff performer. You can score 40 goals in regular season. If you don't bring anything in the postseason, how good really are you? Carolina would scare the hell out of me because they're going to play the same way every series and they don't get shook. They just play every game. They continue to chug away. And before you know it, they have you in a stranglehold. They're like a king cobra and they wrap, they wrap themselves around your neck and then you're eventually out of breath. And before you know it, you're dead. Those are the Carolina Hurricanes. And they will beat you into submission. But if I had to book anything tonight, it's just a complete stamp it. Canes are moving on to the conference final. They'll be the first team to book their ticket tonight. And they'll wait on the winner of the Panthers and Leafs. But what they're doing is incredibly impressive. Dallas, Seattle. This series... Is interesting because one back and forth, 2 2, game five tonight in Dallas. Miro Heiskinen took a puck to the face in game three. Came back in game four in a regulation game, played 30 minutes. Regulation. One of the best defensemen in the league. So valuable to Dallas. Complete machine. Miro Heiskinen. Love, love everything about him. 
I watched him before that draft, and I said, he's going too low. He did. Played 31 minutes the other night in that game. Now, you could argue the rest of their D aren't that good. True. But I, I love, you know, Ottinger hasn't been that good in the series. He's had to play a ton of minutes, and this team has to overcome it. To me, the two best players the other night for Dallas were Miro Heiskin and Max Domi. People don't like Max Domi for some reason. I don't really get it. He seems to just be a polarizing figure. He's having a big impact. He's, he's just, I, to me, he's always around the puck. He's finding ways to score goals, to be contributing on a, on a, you know, a bottom-tier line, so to speak. But he scored two goals the other night. He had an assist on another. He's, you know, Thomas Harley scores a goal. He assists on that one. Then he scores one on the power play from Thomas Harley. He adds the empty net goal. Again, Seattle's getting goals, pardon me, from a number of guys. Larson scored. Schwartz got another one. And Schwartz scored twice, pardon me. Seattle will want to play their style, which is just completely swarm you. When you get a chance, there's three guys on you, and, and they just take the puck, and before you know it, you don't know what's happening. For, for Dallas, their best players didn't have to be great in game four, and they won the game. Jay Gottinger allowed three goals on 19 shots. That's not good. So he hasn't had a great game yet in this series. I think he's going to need one in order to win it. For me... Jason Robertson, I'm kind of giving up on him as a playoff player so far because he's been no good. Rupe Hintz had a great round one. He's been okay in round two. But you look at Dallas's, they got a lot of older guys, Sega and Ben, who have a lot of miles on them. So, and if Marchment's going to be a game-time decision night, he left after his second shift of the game. I look more at the depth of Dallas that, that's going to get them through. And for Seattle, oddly enough, they have way more options than Dallas to win this series. I picked Dallas to win it before it started. I picked Dallas to get to the conference finals before the before the playoffs started. I don't know. I don't know because I think Grubauer has been better than Ottinger in this series, for one. And I think Seattle has more options when it comes to goal scoring and creating opportunities. For Dallas, their saving grace is they are faster than Seattle, and they have a very good power play. That's how they've won a few games in this series. It's just creating opportunities via the power play and making Seattle pay for it. Tonight's game, who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? Every game's different. Every game, something else happens. In game one, Seattle scored four goals in the first period. They win the game in overtime. Game two, Dallas controls the puck. They barely allow Seattle to have it. Second game, Seattle completely whitewashes Dallas 7-2. And then in game four, it was closer. It came closer in the third period. But through 40 minutes, Dallas was by far the better hockey team. Dallas needs to play fast. They had two power play goals in game four. They need to continue to do that. For Seattle, get on the puck, completely swarm guys, and use your just your 
They're a gnat. That's what Seattle is. They're gnats. They're they're annoying to play against. They're always around. That is what they need to continue to do. And I think Grubauer, Grubauer got pulled after the second period. It wasn't his fault. The team wasn't playing that great in front of him. He had a great first period. He was locked in. I think he's oozing confidence. Continue to have that. Get in front of Ottinger. He hasn't been that good. Make his life difficult and don't allow him to get on a run. Because if that dude gets some confidence, this inferior Dallas team, I think Dallas is inferior to Vegas and inferior to Edmonton. I think if he gets on a run, they could get to the Stanley Cup final because he's that special of a goaltender, because he's that damn good. We'll see. I'm excited for that game tonight. And I mentioned this earlier off the top, but it's official now. The Philadelphia Flyers have hired Keith Jones as president of hockey operations and removed the interim tag from general manager Danny Breer. So the Flyers have their management staff in place. Chuck Fletcher was uh, was fired, and they released a statement. Today marks a new era for the Philadelphia Flyers. The team said in a statement, this is a storied franchise with the most passionate fans in the National Hockey League. Our ultimate goal is to deliver them a championship. Achieving that goal will take time. We intend to honor the incredible history of the orange and black while paving a fresh path forward. That starts by creating a winning culture throughout the organization. John Tortorella. Had, will still remain the head coach, so he's still uh, he's still hired by the Philadelphia Flyers. He was sitting with Danny Breer at the end of the year, which is interesting. But Philadelphia, here's some other news. Sounds like Matthew Nyes is feeling uh, feeling better day by day. He will have to be cleared. Not sure that happens before Game Five plus the lease. So. Sounds like he could be back maybe through game six. That's a that's a possibility. But Philadelphia has their management in, in co, which uh which is which is good for them. They need they've had some ter- terrible decisions as of late, in in my opinion. And they needed I'm not sure these are the right guys. I I don't know. Keith Jones, who's never done it. Danny Breer, who's barely been on the job. We'll see. But Chuck Fletcher wasn't wor- working, and he's had, he's had a ton of experience. So you go with somebody who has none. You just do the complete opposite of what you did before, and that's normally how these, these organizations do business. So TNT will have to find a new person. Keith Jones is gone. Turner will be looking for for a new uh, new analyst. I'm available. I mean... Hard to live up to Keith Jones, but I mean, I am I am available. So if you if you need somebody, give me a call, Turner. Huh? Before let's go to UFC. Yeah, UFC yesterday. Dana White announced that he had some announcements and number of f- funny things here. So he announced the card for UFC 290, and it's fantastic, which is during International Fight Week in July. The main event is Alexander Volkanovski versus Yair Rodriguez for the for the undisputed featherweight title. Yair beat Josh Emmett in February, so these two will square off in the main event. It's a great fight. I'm looking forward to it. 
Volk is coming off a loss to Islam at lightweight. But again, Volk is one of the best, in my opinion, to ever get inside the octagon, any weight class. And that, that that's just, it's just a fun fight. It's a good one. And it's a it's a good one to headline International Fight Week. The co-main event, this will be another five-round fight. Brandon Moreno versus Alexander Pantoja, two for the flyweight title. Moreno defeated Davison Figueredo in Jan- in January. Pardon me, in January, he's now back to fight Pantoja, who defeated him in the UFC uh, earlier in their careers. So Pantoja's climbed the ranks. He will get to fight Brandon Moreno, settle a score. To me, Moreno's improved so much over his lot, especially with the battles with, with Figgy and how, how good he is and just his striking and, and everything he brings to the table. Another fun fight. The third fight in the card is a middleweight bout between Robert Whitaker and Drikas Duplessis. This is the fight that makes no sense. Champion Israel Adesanya just defeated Alex Pereira. And he knocked him out. Big celebration, big moment for him. He talks about Drikas after the bout. He says, I want to drag his carcass all around Africa. That he Drikas talked about how Izzy's not really an African. He is because he lives in South Africa. So they have that, and it's a cringy battle, but it, it's it's beef nonetheless. Good show on Netflix, by the way. So Drikas versus Izzy. If you can book this in July, why wouldn't they have booked Izzy versus Drikas for this event? Maybe you don't want to do it. It's too soon. You push one of these other fights back a month. It could have happened. But instead, you go Robert Whitaker versus Drikas. And this is tricky because Rob has defeated everybody but Izzy. Fought Izzy twice. He got knocked out in Melbourne, and then he lost in Houston, Texas. Two fights, two losses to the current champion. But Dana White comes out and says, we're going to have Robert Whitaker versus Drikas Duplessis title eliminator. The winner will fight Izzy later in 2023. Here's the problem. I don't think anybody wants to see Rob fight Izzy again. To me, it's not something people want to watch. I thought the second fight was close, but I don't love trilogy fights. I like seeing new matchups. Pereira, Izzy, the second one in UFC made sense because they had they had beef. Izzy was a long-standing champion. I understood it. I don't think there's a chance in hell Drickus beats the Reaper. He's not beating Robert Whitaker. Robert Whitaker is one of the best, just pure fighters of his generation, except Izzy's just better. And the way, how big Izzy is, his size advantage over Robert Whitaker, it makes it extremely difficult for him to win that fight. So I think Whitaker's going to beat Drikas, and you're going to get Whitaker versus Adesanya three, and nobody wants to see it. I don't think Adesanya wants to fight Whitaker again. He clearly wants to fight Duplessis. I would scrap this card altogether. I've heard Chael Sonnen make this argument, and I agree with him. This fight makes no sense. Why was this booked? It's marquee. you got two names that really make a whole lot of sense. And is it nice to have a third fight with Robert Whitaker on International Fight Week? Absolutely. I get it. But 
what does it really accomplish? It gets Drickus, a guy in the middleweight division who hasn't fought for the title. He's going to get his first loss in the UFC. And again, I'm looking ahead here, but that's how I think it's going to go. He's going to get his first loss and you eliminate one of the title challengers. It was Volk's argument when Holloway fought Arnold Allen. Now, Arnold, Arnold Allen's coming off a loss. He's nowhere closer to the title. Who is Volk fighting after Yair? If he beats him, who's his next title fight? It's not going to be Max Holloway because they fought three times and Volk's 3-0. You could argue Henry Cejudo makes more sense. That's what's the argument that I make is it's a fresh fight. He's fought Brian Ortega. He's fought... He's not fighting Josh Emmett, unless Josh Emmett comes up with a big one. Is he going to fight Ilya Teporia? Maybe. Because he just hasn't fought him yet. But in the middleweight division, Izzy's fought everybody. He's fought Canier. He's fought Vittori twice. He's fought Paulo Costa. He hasn't fought Chemaev. That's the only one. That's the one that would make sense. But Chemaev isn't fighting. There's no news on him. What's happening? And if it's when if Chemaev fights in October, when's Izzy fighting? They're not going to book Izzy in Abu Dhabi. I don't think so. He's a headliner. You see, he, people love watching him fight. Are they going to book him as a co-main on the John Jones heavyweight card in November at MSG? I don't think so. Is he going to fight in Vegas in December? Maybe. It's kind of the worst pay-per-view. People don't care about it. You're right before Christmas. So you're getting logjammed here. And if these two fight in July, neither of them are going to be ready to fight Izzy in September. So it creates problems. So either Dana White has said, either guy wins, they get a championship opportunity. It makes all the sense in the world if it's Duplessis, but it's not going to be. Pereira wants to move to 20. <coughs> Pardon me, wants to move to 205. Okay. Like that's another guy that would make sense fighting Izzy. Not gonna happen. Do you just wait? Is that fight in 2024? Is Izzy only gonna fight once this year? I don't think he wants to do that. He likes to be an active champion. He prides himself on that. Other than that, Costa fought, Canier fought, Vettery twice, Rob Whitaker twice, Pereira twice, Strickland hasn't fought him, but clearly that's not something that's that interesting to UFC. Brunson beat him. Roman Duelise too low. Hermanson, no. Gaslam beat him. Chris Curtis, you get too low. So the only one that makes sense is Chamaya. If I was the UFC, what I would have done. Is I would have booked Duplessis versus versus uh, Adesanya. I would have, and I think Adesanya would have schooled him. But again, it's a fight people want. It's a fight Izzy wants. It's a fight Duplessis wants. People will watch it. And I would have booked the Wolf Hamza Chimaev against the Reaper in. Robert Whitaker. Chamayo's first fight at one, first fight at 185 is the second best middleweight of his generation, Robert Whitaker.
How good are you, Chemayev? And if you beat Robert Whitaker, you are the number one contender. That's the title eliminator. Robert Whitaker went on Ariel's show and he says, I want to, I deserve to fight for another, I deserve another chance at the title. Give me another opportunity. I beat everybody but Israel. Yes, you have. But we're not giving you a third fight without a huge win. And Duplessis is not that huge third, is not that huge win. Go beat the go beat the true Reaper. Go beat the guy everybody's afraid of that nobody wants to step in the cage with. Go beat Hamzat. You get your third chance. That booking would have made way more sense. Why Jemaya's not fighting? I don't know. People said he can't get to the United States. There's a visa issue. All right. You can work shit out. You can figure some stuff out. What if they had Chemayev versus Whitaker for International Fight Week? And then in August, you go with Izzy and Duplessis at a, at a, at a pay-per-view in Boston. So I think they're targeting Jamal Hill and uh, Yuri Prohaska. For that fight now. Who knows if that happens? Yuri's always injured. The stuff happens. That light heavyweight division is completely in flux. Who knows? I don't. I love the UFC and I follow it daily. I just find this booking strange. It's weird. I think they could have done a whole lot of better job with it. Fourth fight, lightweight fight that was supposed to happen a number of months ago in March. Jalen Turner coming off a loss to Gamrot against Dan Hooker. Fun fight. Both guys are kind of surging contenders. They both want to get in a position at lightweight to get an opportunity. I like the fight. It's fun. You rebook it. All for it. And the fifth fight on the main card, Bo Nickel, who won his first fight against Jamie Pickett in a number of seconds. He will get Treshawn Gore, who's another Dana White contender series prospect, a guy people like in the middleweight division. Bo Nickel is really getting the bump. He's getting the – he's the next prodigy type guy because he's been putting on cards. He, I look at his the Rahul Raz Jr. bump. I don't know how good he is. First fight, he hit a guy in the junk, then grappled him to the ground, and he won the fight. Great. I think he's got talent. I don't think he's – we haven't seen anything of his punching power. If you just think you're going to win against these guys in the UFC by getting them to the ground, good luck, boy. How'd that work for Cron Gracie? He couldn't strike. I think for, for Bo Nickel, we need to see an evolution of his striking. We need to see him do it in the cage before I really start to think this guy's a prospect that could be a future champion. Prelims. Robbie Lawler versus Nico Price. Robbie Lawler, former champion, uh, former welterweight champion. He, it will be his retirement fight, so big moment for him. Huge and one of my favorites on this card, this fight. Prelims. Sean Brady, number ninth ranked welterweight, fighting JDM Jack Della Maddalena, who's a surging contender, knocking people out. Sean Brady's last fight against Bilal Muhammad. He was knocked out in Abu Dhabi. This is a on any other event, this is on the main card. This is a huge fight. And quite frankly, it's a bit it's a better fight than four and five of the preliminary card, but you book it for prelims. It's on, it's on ABC. Do you want eyes to, to watch it? I get it. Sean Brady, Jack Dettel, Madalena. Awesome fight. Can't wait for it. And then this is the strange one. They said Davison Figueredo was supposed to fight Manel Cop 
a flyweight bout on the prelims. But then Davison Figueredo came out and said, no, I can't fight. I haven't been medically cleared yet. So Dana White, what's happening, bro? What's happening, my guy? He can't fight. So who knows? Strange, though. Just strange. But I think the card's really good. I think they could have been better. I think it could have been way better. And again, it's my idea, so I'm going to think it's better than what people say. But again, it could have been better. But solid card. Dana White also announced uh, UFC's returning to London in July with a fight night. Tom Aspinall, the great heavyweight, is returning. He fought last March, tore his ACL in a fight against Curtis Blades. He will return against Marcin Tabura. Number, he's number five. Tabura's ranked 10. Heavyweight main event. Molly McCann will be in that card. A number of other favorite English fighters. It should be great to see Tom Aspinall back in the cage at the O2. This evening in the NBA, two game sixes. Celtics, Sixers, Nuggets, Suns. Celtics and Suns both have to win to keep their series going. Joel Embiid was fantastic in Game 5. The Celtics were not. Jason Tatum at times looked like the only player that wanted to play on the court, but also it was strange because Jalen Brown had no energy. He didn't attack. He didn't play with any kind of fervor. It was a strange game for the Celtics. It was nowhere close. I expect them to bounce back. To, last year, in the second round, they lost Game 5 at home to the Milwaukee Bucks. They went in Game 6 in Milwaukee, won that game, and then won Game 7 at home. They had the opportunity to do the same thing this year. Groundhog Day. I don't know. Tyrese Maxey was great the other night on the road. And Bede was locked in. Harden did what he had to do. And Tobias Harris, when he was on the floor because he was in foul trouble, was efficient. For the Celtics, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum both have to play hard together. We haven't seen that enough in this series. The Celtics are the better team. They should be so much. You get by the Sixers, you get the Knicks or the Heat in the conference final, and you should mop the floor with either of them because you're way better. The Heat are half a team, and they're still playing. Crazy. The Knicks beat them last night, but the Heat have the opportunity to close that series out tomorrow night in Miami, which we'll talk about that more tomorrow. Tonight's NBA games... I'm going back to the well with the Celtics. I shouldn't, the way they played. But they're the better team in this series. Will big change happen? Joe Missoula is not going to get fired if they lose this series. But Tatum and Brown, do they want to stick together? Does it work? Is it going to be a pair that can win you a championship? Al Horford's getting a year older. Derek White will want more money eventually. Robert Williams, what is he as a player? Is he just now a bench center now? Who knows? It's interesting. I got the Celtics winning tonight, forcing a game seven. We'll see if I'm right about that. And I got I got the Suns winning tonight in Phoenix, forcing game seven back in Denver. 
two best players and your role players play better on at home. Bruce Brown was awesome for the Nuggets in Game 5. Role player. He won't be that good tonight. I think the Suns players step up. They find a way to win tonight, force a Game 7 back in Denver, Colorado. So, that's good. That's it for today. Oh, did you catch that Bo Bichette error in extras yesterday? Woof. But we got more coming this week. More coming. We'll recap, to the game, recap the games uh, from tonight. Talk about them tomorrow. UFC card this weekend in Charlotte. So, so be sure to touch on that later in the week. We got the Byron Nelson in golf this weekend going on. We got the PGA Championship a week from today starting. That should be fantastic. No Tiger Woods had ankle surgery announced yesterday. He won't be participating. But this weekend at the Byron Nelson, you got guys like Scotty Scheffler. You ever heard of him? Hideki Matsuyama. Matt Kuchar, one of my favorites. Canadians Adam Hadwin. Uh, you also have, so I'm going through the list here. Bryce Garnett, Harry Higgs, Seamus Power, Tom Hoagie. Uh, S.H. Kim, good golfer, he's playing well lately. Got a solid crew in uh, solid solid players down there at the Byron Nelson a week before a major. All you can really ask for, so uh, excited for that. So hope you guys all have a great Thursday. Be back with you guys tomorrow, which obviously is Friday, which is which is a great day. So enjoy the rest of your day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This is to the point.